Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chapter 25 starts the day before the wedding. The labels for Jane's honeymoon luggage sit on a shelf. They read Jane Rochester, Hotel, London. But she's being superstitious about affixing them to her trunks. The beautiful clothes inside belong to someone who isn't born yet. Her low-wood dresses hang in the closet. Rochester is out on some last-minute errands. It's storming out, and it's late, and Jane is anxious that he isn't home yet. When he finally gets home, Jane has dinner with him but also tells him that she has to talk to him. He's alarmed by how upset she seems. She tells him that two things happened the night before, both of which upset her. The first is that she had a nightmare. There was a baby, which we know is a bad sign, and Thornfield was burnt to the ground. The second was that in the middle of the night, a woman came into her room, took Jane's veil out of its box, and began to try it on. Jane thought at first that it was Sophie, but it wasn't Sophie. She saw the woman in the mirror, and the sight terrified her. The reflection had, quote, purple bloated features and blackened liniments, and reminded Jane most of a vampire. The woman, after trying Jane's veil on, rips it up and stomps on it. She then comes to Jane with a candle and looks closely at Jane's face, nose to nose, stares right in Jane's eyes, and then blows the candle out. Jane passes out for the second time in her life. Rochester spends this scene trying to convince Jane that it was a dream. She tells him that it wasn't. The veil was ripped up in the morning. He tries to convince her that it was Grace Poole. It wasn't. Jane saw the woman's face and it wasn't Grace's. He then tries to convince her that it was half dream, half real. Jane and Rochester say some very pretty things to each other in this chapter. They're genuinely excited to be married in the morning. Jane says, I think it is a glorious thing to have the hope of living with you because I love you. That sentence, Rochester tells us, penetrates his breast painfully. The chapter ends with Jane slightly subdued, Rochester telling her to go sleep in the nursery with Adele and Sophie and to lock the door. Jane holds Adele in her arms and doesn't sleep a wink. 
Chapter 26 is the wedding day. Jane gets dressed and hardly recognizes herself in the mirror. Rochester drags her as he nearly runs to the church. He tells John to get the horses ready because they are going to want to leave immediately after the wedding. But then, at the wedding, someone objects. A solicitor steps forward and says, Rochester, you cannot marry. You already have a wife and she lives. The wife is given the name of Bertha Antoinetta Mason Rochester, and her brother, Mason, is there as a witness to the fact that this woman was alive and living in Thornfield Hall just a few months ago. Rochester thinks for a long time, but then he confesses. It's true. He has a wife. She's locked in his attic. He meant to be a bigamist. And then he marches everyone up to the upper story to show them the woman to whom he is tied forever. He has Grace Poole, who it turns out is Bertha's caretaker, open the door. Grace is cooking in the room with Bertha, who's in a, quote, tolerable mood. But then Grace says, she sees you, sir. And Grace and Rochester both know that that means that Bertha is going to try to attack Rochester. Jane is horrified at the sight of Bertha. Jane calls her a hyena and reminds us that the woman is purple. This is the only scene in which we spend time with Bertha, knowing that it is Bertha. There are a lot of theories as to what to do with Bertha as a character. Some people say that she's part of Jane, a gothic doppelganger. Some people say she's a Christian comeuppance for Rochester, whose libertine ways are being punished by God. Here is Deborah Nord on Bertha. With Jane and Bertha, there is this possibility that she represents some kind of repressed part of Jane or the angry part of Jane, which is important to that feminist reading. But she also represents a kind of cautionary tale for Jane. You know, this could happen to you. You could go, you could go crazy too. <laughs> If you become embroiled in this relationship and marry a, ma- a man in a bigamist marriage, and so I think it's it's what Jane is afraid of becoming and what she loathes, what she does not want to become, what she rejects. Another thing that we find out in this chapter is that Bertha is Creole. Given that Bertha is described as purple, black, bloated, and having red eyes, we obviously had to ask someone about what we are supposed to think about Bertha's race. Here's Christy Harner, who you might remember from our conversations about physiognomy. I think scholars have come to no consensus whatsoever on Bertha's racial status. She's described in the novel as just Creole, which could mean two very different things in the 19th century. She could be mixed race or she could be a colonist who was living in the Caribbean. And it feels important to me that we don't know and that 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 is a kind of deliberate obscuration or absence in the novel. Bertha is described in animalistic ways, which we can read as racialized and we should read as racialized. But she's also described in many ways with the language that would have been applied to, to drunks in the period or to people who were deemed quote-unquote insane or suffering from mental illness. 
the language is very similar. So if you read the language of completely white English people who are in mental institutions in the 19th century, it is the same. The fleshy lips, the kind of distended facial features, the sense of animality, that's associated with mental illness as much as it is with with race. The text absolutely wants us to believe that Bertha is mad and that her madness was made worse by a bad temperament and weakness where alcohol is concerned. And I've been reading this book for 25 years and I still don't know everything that I think about Bertha. But here's one thing I know. Bertha may have mental health issues, but she behaves in completely reasonable ways. We are told that Bertha is locked up because she's a maniac. However, we have never heard about her attacking Grace Poole. Bertha, when she can sneak out, tries to murder Rochester, the man who's locking her up in the attic. Then she lunges for and stabs and bites her brother, who arguably lets Rochester lock her up. She walks by Jane's room on her way to light Rochester's bed on fire, and she walks by Adele and Sophie as well and leaves them untouched. She is obviously very smart and is able to break out frequently. The only person who she ever searches out to attack is Rochester. This is not a woman out of control. It is a woman entirely in control. And what Bertha does in the room with Jane is my favorite. She's trying to communicate with Jane. I was the bride and it ended in violence. Let me rip up the veil so that you cannot make the same mistake as I did. Let me look you right in the face so you can see what you might become. Don't marry him. The chapter ends with Jane taking one last look at Bertha and falling into despair. She comes to the conclusion that Rochester never loved her. She then goes back to her room, takes off her wedding dress, and puts on one of her old Lowood frocks. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is On Air from Hot and Bothered. Well, Lauren, we're in the Gothic now. Oh, man, are we in the Gothic now. I'm really sitting with this assessment of Bertha as almost a, a sister in her warning, as making an act of grace in some way. And I, I really haven't thought about it that way before. And it's especially moving, I think, for me right now to sit with it as I'm about to talk about what I'm about to talk about, which is, of course, the mad woman in the attic. And this phrase, the mad woman in the attic, you know, was the title of Gilbert and Gubar's seminal feminist work of literary theory. And out of all the texts that they consider, I mean, it's a 700 page book, the one who they choose to represent women's anger and what we do with it in literature, what women do with it in literature, most of all, is Bertha. It is the titular madwoman in the attic. And I just want to note that part of what they were wrestling with is they were saying, you know, ladies, it doesn't have to be this trope. We don't have to be stuck with this notion of our own rage, 
passion and madness that's just sequestered and locked away as the place where our own anger at our own oppression has to live. So this is something that they were actively struggling with. And yet naming it was a form of popularizing it. And so here we are finally in the attic with the mad woman. And I just want to take a moment to consider it because this isn't a trope of power, the mad woman in the attic. You know, I think that we can look at whether she is mad or not. But clearly, the people who are brought from the chapel up the three stories into this room to be shown the hyena, to be shown the wild animal, they are being shown the picture of madness and the expected picture of madness. What people believe women are if they've gone wrong somehow. And it's something that Jane herself is not really necessarily questioning or feeling empathy for. She is telling us the story of the mad woman in the attic. And in doing so, she's telling us this story in language that I think it's pretty easy to say is incredibly problematic and disturbing. And Bronte, by creating this character and by describing her through Jane's words as she does, has very much codified exactly who this trope is. And I believe that we are still left with it. One of the things that I'm really left with, though, are that I think we have a lot of reasons to believe that Jane hates Bertha, but Bronte doesn't. Bronte has created what I think is just a very clear map of sisterhood, of this woman going nose to nose with Jane and looking right in her eyes and not hurting her. And I think that if Bronte wanted us to hate Bertha, or if Bronte herself hated Bertha, she would have Bertha acting out more randomly and I don't know, doing worse things than trying to murder her, you know, prison warden. I agree. We also learned that Bertha ended up in this situation with zero agency at all, right? So she was in the way that women were. She was essentially sold as a bride. Her family had holdings that Rochester's family wanted. And so they were married. And that was that. It's not like she fell in love with him and wanted this. It's not like she was given the opportunity that Jane, frankly, has as someone without money. You know, this is sort of the downside of privilege, right? in this situation is that Jane does not offer anything transactionally. And so everything that she can do romantically is purely through agency. Even if she doesn't have that much agency, she has enough to fall in love with Rochester and choose to marry him when he proposes. This is something that Bertha is never given. She's given no agency at all. In fact, I would suspect that Mason, as one of the men in his family, clearly made the choice that this was the right economic arrangement and that this was the situation that she should be in, taken from her home, brought to England, and eventually shut up in this windowless room with someone minding her all the time. That said, as much as that story has roots in it that I, I think we can't help but empathize with, it's not like Bronte has given Bertha any language to tell her own story. And there's something about that act of silencing from this author that it just troubles me. It really troubles me. I am not trying to let Bronte off the hook 
at all. I just think that Bronte feels more ambivalently towards Bertha than Jane does. I think the thing we're supposed to be sure of is that Rochester's in an impossible situation, that he was saddled with a wife who it turned out was crazy and will only ever hit him and lunge at him. And therefore, we're supposed to forgive him for doing what he did. I don't think we're supposed to be feeling ambivalently about that. The situation is supposed to be, you know, to use some of the language that Gilbert and Gubar would hate, but it is supposed to be black and white, completely clear. This man is innocent. He's just been put in an impossible situation. And I'm sure it will shock you to hear that I don't give him such a clean bill there. <laughs> no, of course not. You know, and the, the text is going really far out of its way to give him a lot of credit, right? Like she hits him and he won't hit her back. He'll only wrestle with her, right? I'm like, oh, 10 points to Rochester. He'll only wrestle with her. But the truth is, right, like my overall feeling toward her is that I love her. I think she is the hero at the center of these books. I obviously see myself in her. I'm someone who has struggled with mental health stuff my whole life and also has shaggy brown locks. So I'm like, hey, girl, I know you. It's imagining myself into her is like imagining a horror movie happening to me, right? Like suddenly being married off and like someone rather than having patience with my mental health issues, locking me up. I, I think that she is absolutely just this this like Easter egg that's been left for us in the middle of this novel that purports to be about Jane and Rochester. But there are all of these theories about her that I would love your thoughts on, like the idea that she's part of Jane, right? That there's like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or like fight club element that like she and Jane are the same person. And I find none of those theories satisfying. And I just want to know your thoughts about that. I think I don't like them because they take even more agency away from Bertha. I feel like it's our responsibility to breathe life into her and like not see her as a literary device. I think that what I'm struggling with is I do believe that she is written pretty explicitly as a literary device. And I say that as someone who also easily imagines myself as having been Bertha in the past. And like, narrowly missing being Bertha in the present. All of us like frizzy haired girls who feel too much, like we all see ourselves in here. But I want to just for myself delineate what I am projecting of myself onto the page here and what I think Bronte is giving us. And I think that what Bronte is giving us is something less than what we might feel about Bertha. And that is also part of why I struggle with some of the theories around her, because I think that they give Bronte, frankly, too much credit. I think that she is there as both an obstacle and I think that she is there as a foil. And it is it is the foil element that I think has the most credence, which is very different than a doppelganger. You know, a doppelganger is is a twin. And I think actually it's quite the opposite of that, where maybe they began as doppelgangers in some sense. You know, we meet Jane as she is too aflamed with passion to be contained. She is locked away in the red room. She has her own experience, which is like a Bertha experience. And then 
the story parts, right? Then then Jane goes off to Lowood and then Jane has Miss Temple showing her how to be a grown up and Jane has to like get it together and find her own employment. And she has no choice but to have agency. She has no choice but to refine her emotions and to develop some degree of control. Whereas Bertha is is quite the opposite of that, right? So Bertha has not had those choices because she's had certain privilege and she has found herself trapped in the Red Room forever. And so she's stuck in that place where all she is is feeling and all she is is that that sense of panic, right? And so that to me means that that she is Jane's foil in so many ways emotionally but in addition to that, then there are all of the visual cues, right? There's the constant talk about Jane's paleness and Jane's smallness and Jane's incredible restraint. I mean, she's been engaged to the love of her life for a month now, has barely even touched the guy. And here we are hearing about how licentious Miss Frizz used to be. And I think that there's that real split at puberty where it's like you can either be this emotional pleasure seeking fighter as Bertha is, or you can put on the Quaker frock and stay out of the sun and get to work, which is what Jane does. And a lot of that, I think, is directed by economics. But I also think to a certain extent, it's temperament, right? So the moments that you've heard me say where I get so frustrated with Jane is because she's not pulling a Bertha about things. There's no space for her passion, at least in a way that satisfies me. But of course, we're going to find out what the real difference is, I think, which is the agency to leave. Bertha never gets to leave. And Jane will. It's just so funny, Lauren, because you set that up as like we're giving Bronte too much credit. But I I feel like Bronte does deserve the credit for all of that. Like this is the Red Room. Bertha is locked up. And in a few chapters, we're going to watch Jane run away. And I do think, of course, that Bronte wants us to believe that Rochester is good and that he's fundamentally good and that he's actually doing the best that he can. And and again, we'll, we'll see more evidence for that soon. And that, and that he was just put in an impossible situation. What are you supposed to do with someone who's this angry and this drunk and this sexual? And like, I think Bronte is inviting us into that judgment. But I also think she's inviting us into the judgment of the fact that there were no other options for Bertha. The other foil for Bertha is Rochester. Rochester is also dark and has spent years traveling around Europe, sleeping with whoever he wants, shooting men in the shoulder. Being angry, drunk, and sexual. <laughs> exactly. And he just gets to go and do it all. And so I do think one of the things that Bronte is saying is like, you're allowed to do this if you're a man. But look what happens to you if you're a woman. And I think she finds it disgusting and distasteful in women. Right. I think she's like, come on, Bertha, you should have gotten your Quaker frock on. And I, you know, and I also think that she thinks that like mental illness can just like seep in and it isn't necessarily someone's fault. So I, I think it's complicated, but I think that Bronte has a lot of it there in the text. I think we are bringing some of our modern sensibilities here, obviously, but I think a lot of grace for Bertha is available to us right there in the text. Well, I totally agree with you that if there is a doppelganger to me, it is between Rochester and Bertha and not Bertha and Jane. And of course, 
I mean, of course you're right. Like she has created these characters. We're talking about them in this way because she invented them. No, that's of course. Not what I mean. No, no, but no, 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 but but I but I do sometimes, you know, I get so lost in the narrative. I, I get so connected to these characters that it is at times hard to remember that they are inventions, that there are all of these choices. Everything about them is a choice. But I I think that what you're probably hearing from me is just my absolute just disgust and frank and devastation at the way that Bertha is portrayed in this book. And it is something that I can't get over. It is something that even if we can find those seeds of empathy in there, we have to dig to find them. And we have to dig past language that I find just so reprehensible that it breaks my heart. This is what breaks my heart about this book more than anything else. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Well, let's look closely at a little, a moment in the text that I think gets to the heart of what we've been talking about. And this is Rochester talking. So he has dragged everybody up to the third floor and is showing them Bertha, like a zoo animal. And he says, that is my wife. Such is the sole conjugal embrace I am ever to know. Such are the endearments which are to solace my leisure hours. And this is what I wish to have. This young girl who stands so grave and quiet at the mouth of hell. Right? Like it's this direct comparison between Bertha and Jane. And I think to some extent he's almost trying to make a legal argument, right? The solicitor says after this, well, Jane, we're not going to hold you accountable for anything. You clearly didn't know. Because like bigamy is a big crime, big crime. (laughs) And he was about to commit it, right? And if Jane knew, she would have been an accessory to this crime. And I think that part of what Rochester is trying to do is explain to them like why he shouldn't be prosecuted, right? He's like, look at how reasonable what I wanted was, my two options are that and this wonderful woman who, even when confronted with that, is standing here grave and quiet. Ugh, there's so much in this, <laughs> in in just this statement, right? I mean, I read through it and I, I've been sitting with, with him saying this for days. Like it's the thing that clatters around in my heart and makes my heart hurt as much as anything else that we've read. And believe me, I am no fan of Rochester's in this chapter. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how many times I have the word gaslight with an exclamation point in my margins. And yet 
This is his wife. Such is the sole conjugal embrace he is ever to know. I don't want that for him. I don't want that for him. And yet he gets right into this like, look, I can have this person who I'm literally calling the mouth of hell. It's either her or this young girl. And it just feels like, dude, like you had me. I feel you. My heart is breaking for you. Do you have to do you have to go there? Does it have to go into back to the young girl te- territory? Can't you see the humanity in your wife who you have trapped here and not just your rage at your situation? Can't you see Jane as someone who might contain difficult emotions as well instead of just this grave young girl? Like, can't you just see women? Please see women. It drives drives me crazy. But he's not trying to see them in this moment, right? Like that is what's going to happen in the next chapter. He's making a point to the other men in the room. He doesn't think of Jane as a young girl who stands so grave and quiet. She hears it and thinks he means it, right? She goes to her room and is like, holy shit, he never loved me. I was just the antithesis to that. But what's coming is here are all of the reasons that I love you and all of the things about Bertha and all of the complicatedness. This is a performance of masculinity for legal reasons, right? I really do believe he's like attempting to get out of a legal situation. Why else would he want to like publicly out himself? He's kept this secret about his mad wife in the attic for 10 years and he's letting it all hang out now because he's being accused of a crime. He's being rightfully accused of a crime. So he needs, you know, this is some serious PR. He's trying to control the narrative here. Yeah, he is accurately being accused of a crime. He's they are saying you attempted to be a bigamist. And he I mean, he stands there in silence for 10 minutes. I really think he's like, holy shit, I've been caught. Right. And he's just like trying to think of the best angle. I buy that he believes this insofar as he's like, did you really want nothing better for me than that? Can't you understand and look at the comparison between the two of them? But I do think he's like playing to the balcony on this. I also think there's something else in this passage and indeed this entire scenario, which is it remains to be a screed against marriage. Mm -hmm. This is a marriage plot book that literally exists to show you how horrible marriage is. And this is something that Bronte's building through this whole chapter, right? I mean, Jane is hardly some breathless bride who's skipping off to the altar. She's a ghost in her wedding dress. She can barely recognize herself. Everything is just feeling stressful and terrifying. And then this is what happens. This is what marriage does. And marriage is yet another version of not having the agency to leave, right? Marriage is another way of being trapped in the room. And obviously, Rochester is not trapped as much as Bertha is, but Rochester is still trapped. Rochester doesn't have the agency to make the life that he wants or to give the life that someone else wants. I mean, the ripple effects of this are so painful. And the fact that that these two people who hate each other and live in this house and feel completely imprisoned in this relationship because of this institution, because of marriage, literally cannot escape it. It's a formidable claim in a story like this, especially. So Jane walks out of the room with the solicitor 
who gives her this information, right? He's been sent by Jane's uncle. It turns out that Jane's uncle gets this letter from Jane saying, uncle, I just learned that you exist. Aunt Reed sucks. And so I'm alive. I'm about to marry this guy, Rochester, but I'm so glad to find out you're alive. The uncle gets the letter and is like, oh, I'm going to ask my friend Mason, who's also in Madeira. He knows someone named Rochester. Finds out that Rochester is already married and so sends a solicitor. And the solicitor, it does not console Jane, right? He's not like, oh my God, you poor girl, your heart must be broken. He starts giving her legal advice, right? He's like, your uncle's going to be really glad to find out that you didn't get duped into this union. I would send you to him, but that doesn't make sense because he's dying. And like everybody around her is not acting like her heart has just been broken and like her whole world has been shattered. They're acting like some new piece of legal information has been offered. And so what are they going to do now? Right. Nobody is reaching out to Jane and saying, are you okay?" (laughs) Well, it's hard to imagine that any of these people would see how Jane has loved Rochester and what she would want. I mean, you know, she's the 18 year old governess who was just hoodwinked into marrying her bigamist employer who's hiding another wife in the house. I mean, it's not a good look. And one could see how the idea of saving her from that would be the only way this could possibly look because people didn't marry for love. Right. And that's already such an exception here. The notion that this is where her heart would have led her is one thing. And also now there's this feeling of, oh, the little governess actually is about to possibly become a very wealthy woman. And so within the economic expectations of marriage, she doesn't need to be with this like ugly 40 year old bigamist employer (laughs) when he's not being played by Michael Fassbender. (laughs) So, I mean, the irony of this, right, that Jane has taken it upon herself to reach out to her cousin, John Eyre, who, you know, she knows she's she's now heir to an heir. (laughs) Um, It's another way of playing with that word. And it is this gesture of advocating for herself. It's taking that step to to connect with family and to make sure that she has a fortune to bring into the marriage as well so that there is some equality there. That is the thing that ends up unraveling all of this. When Jane takes a step like this, that's what messes everything up. And part of that is because they're part of these like little tiny connected social circles. It's like all the power of this colonious world just resides in one garden party. They're all at the same country club. And she doesn't know about that. You know, she's been totally exiled from this world. Like the notion that that this could happen across an ocean and then that a solicitor would be sent to interrupt this moment at the Thornfield Chapel. I mean, it's just totally unthinkable within the world of Jane. But of course, within the world of London, within the world of the season and the parties and how everyone knows everyone else and everyone is connected through their money and their shared investment in like the perpetuation of these patriarchal economic institutions. Like, of course, this is how it pans out. Oh, yeah. I mean, earlier, a few chapters ago, when John Reed dies, Rochester's like, oh, yeah, I heard about that. Someone was just talking about a really big jerk, John Reed. Like, you all know each other. But what's so interesting, Lauren, about that they all know each other thing is there is a moment in the text that hit me so hard this time. So it's at the wedding. The solicitor does 
this thing that Jane says happens once in a hundred years, right? I object to this wedding. And he says, you know, Mr. Rochester has a wife and she lives in Thornfield Hall. And the minister says, impossible. I am an old resident in this neighborhood, sir, and never have heard of a Mrs. Rochester at Thornfield Hall. And I'm like, you confident asshole. It just reminded me so much of these me too guys who came out for one another and was like, "Uh uh-uh, I've known Matt Lauer for years and he's a good guy. I've never heard anything bad. I'm like, dude, why would you have heard? Like this guy comes to his defense without any information and it drove me at the wall. And it's the minister. It's the man of God. It's the person who is supposed to be upholding morality in this community and be on the lookout for anything that might be going awry. He's the one who comes to his defense because that's how it works. Yeah. Can we talk about God? Always. (laughs) Vanessa, I have not been to divinity school at Harvard, but as a journalist, one of the topics that I've spent a lot of time reporting on and writing about has been when it is that people turn to God, especially people who have resisted the notion of God, what it is that happens in their lives, in the world that makes them need the presence of God and identify it. And here's Jane doing just that. Here's Jane having already told us, you know, I have no God but Rochester. And then all of this falls apart. And again, it feels like she has nothing. But the thing that she can have is the notion of God. She says that she remembers it. It's been instilled in her. It's been instilled for better or for worse, you know, at Lowood, through Helen, through what it means to just be an English girl. And here she is. That is where she turns because her identity, her structure, her sense of meaning and trust, what can feel solid to her, it's all gone in a moment. And that is what remains. And I don't want it to be what remains. I don't want Jane to turn to God. I want her to be someone who turns to humanity and turns to herself. But maybe that's too much to ask. And maybe this is simply what happens, which is that if we create a world in which people can be this exiled and impoverished and alone within their own lives, that is the only thing that people are going to find is something so far outside themselves and also so, so codified, so written. And it's sort of up to us, I think, as other human beings, as as secularists, as people who create a society where people won't need that if they choose it, if they feel it fine. But the idea that we can live in a world where people feel like they have nothing and when they have nothing, at least they have God. That's something that I really struggle with. 
So I think it's wonderful that Jane has something. I think that absolutely Jane should also have material stability. I think that there should be a place to go when your boss has raped you, right? Where like that would happen to governesses and the wives would just kick the women out and they would go and live on the streets. And this is obviously not exactly that situation, but it's also not not that situation that Jane is finding herself in. But I certainly don't have any problem with all of us in moments of despair feeling as though the idea of God can save you. And what what Jane is actually quoting is a psalm, which I think is interesting on, on many levels. One is that it's like not the gospels, right? It's a s- series of love poems, the psalms. But also it's the thing that Jane at eight or nine said to Brocklehurst, I think the psalms are boring. What I don't think Bronte is doing, though, is saying, see, so it's good she went to Lowood and was forced to learn the psalms because now they're going to, you know, make her feel better. I think she just feels really complicatedly about religion, that even things that you learn against your will sometimes can reach up and save you or cradle you or help you make an argument, right? I hated reading Macbeth in the ninth grade and every once in a while it comes in handy. And also the last set of chapters that we read ended with, I could not see God for this idol. And now the the false idol has been broken and so she can see God again. And I don't want to think that Bronte is punishing Jane for having a false idol. What I hope she's saying is that we all create false idols and they will all always get smashed because no one is perfect. Even the man of your dreams going to, you know, have his wife locked in the attic and God will always be there for you is at least what I hope Bronte is saying. But of course, like I am an atheist, I I would like to think that like friends and family and self-love and self-regard and art will always be there for you. But I have no problem with in desperation, people reaching for God. It's also interesting that it's like she hears God's voice on the wind. Yeah. Which, of course, we will hear another voice on the wind at some point and it will feel like a bit of a parallel. Just flagging that without a spoiler for some intensive (laughs) foreshadowing pleasure. (laughs) Can we talk for a moment? Like this second chapter that we read, chapter 26, is like such a big bomb that I feel like we haven't talked at all about chapter 25. And I do think that there's something very beautiful about this chapter. I think it's the one time we really get a sense of what the two of them would be like as a couple of her really bringing concerns to him and of it hurting him to see her in pain. And yes, he continues to gaslight her. But this is meant to be, I think, this very loving, tender, romantic scene between two people who deeply care for one another. She is so worried about him, even though it's pouring rain, she can't stay in the house. And he wants to talk to her, but he's like, okay, but you have to go change your clothes first. I don't want you to catch a cold. And like, there's just such mutual care and fondness in this scene that I think, I don't know, in a lot of desire, right? She says to him, like, like, I can't wait to marry you. She's so excited. There's also such a, I think, modern awareness of 
the quality of that desire, of that attraction. And I love how there's this tenderness, this communication, this addressing current issues that are happening in, in their home and in their family together, essentially. And then he says to her, Look wicked, Jane, as you know well how to look. Coin one of your wild, shy, provoking smiles. Tell me you hate me. Tease me. Vex me. Do anything but move me. I would rather be incensed than saddened. And she says, yeah, I'll tease you and vex you to your heart's content when I finish my tale. But hear me to the end. And there's something about that exchange where it's like, what else do you want in a marriage than that? I know. (laughs) Because then he does listen. I mean, he gaslights her. (laughs) He tries to pretend that, I don't know, his locked away wife didn't creep into her room and rip her veil in half. But other than that, he does at least listen to the story. (laughs) Well, and he tells her that he'll tell her the truth in a year and a day, which is this new promise that she gets from him. And this new sense from that we get from him that he has the intention of telling her the whole truth. He just... I don't know, wants to manipulate her into marrying him first. You know, that old chestnut. It's also interesting because through all of this, he's not hiding his anxiety about having a secret to tell. No. I mean, he keeps he keeps flagging it for her. So it's sort of like Jane. The the lady walked into the room and ripped the veil and he's telling you there's some shit he's hiding. What, you're not going to ask about this? Like, what's going on here? You're getting married. Don't you want to know the story, honey? It's so confusing to me. Yeah, it just makes so much sense to me. The like utter denial that can be at the heart of like this phase of a romantic relationship. And she's also the least worldly person in the world. (laughs) You know, I mean, she's really known no one. She's been nowhere. And here she is feeling this and being given this. And, you know, I would imagine that the next time someone proposes to her, she might wonder if he's hiding a wife in the attic. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it really hasn't occurred to her yet. (laughs) The other thing that I feel like we have to remark on, because she only does it like, I think four times in the whole novel, but I'd, I'd have to go back and check. Is she directly addresses the reader. She says, reader, I know you want to know what happened to me last night, but I'm going to tell Mr. Rochester in a couple of pages and you'll learn it then too. And I just think it's so interesting when she decides to do that, when she decides to remind us that she's a narrator crafting a tale from the future. And I'm curious if you have a theory as to why this is one of the moments. And it's interesting. A couple chapters ago, there was another one, too, where she was relaying dialogue in this different format. And I have to say, I've puzzled over it a little bit. I, I've been flagging these moments and they they haven't been clearly explaining themselves to me. Have they been explaining themselves to you? Because they feel almost random to me at times. There doesn't seem to be reason behind it. No, I've never been able to unlock it, I guess. Maybe I just think that it's beautiful that in this moment, right before the world is about to fall apart in front of her, she's reminding us of her power, that she is writing a story and we are reading it and that she's concocting this for us. And yes, she's calling it an autobiography and saying that it is as true. She can tell it. But she's just reminding us of her agency and of the fact that she survives. I guess that's what I think. Whenever she writes reader, What I'm reminded of is that unless this is a really gothic novel, she's alive at the end. And this feels like a really beautiful moment to remind us that she survives. I love that. I've also wondered just 
as a writer, thinking about her writing this in such a fury, right? We're still in the section of the book that she wrote in just this stretch of just scrawling it out, getting it out of her. I have found myself wondering, is she writing, 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 writing? And then she hits this point and she 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 gets a little stuck. She's not quite sure how she's going to approach it or she feels intimidated by it. And it's just like, OK, how would Jane tell Rochester? I'm just going to get it out as a story just like this. And then, you know, this thing was such a rush job, which is so remarkable to think about when you consider the precision and the refinement and so much intentionality in here that I do wonder if these are moments where she just like had to get it out and move on. And this is the way that she could do it. Yeah, which I don't know, is also Charlotte saying I'm alive, right? I just can't imagine how alive she felt and like pouring the story out of her. Right, because Charlotte had just survived her own heartbreak. She's also telling us that she's a survivor through telling this story. And I think that that, of course, is what has driven so many people to write fiction, that this is this is a way of having all of the feelings without being the mad woman in the attic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What if Bertha was given a pen? I'm really excited to talk more about Bertha. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to have a special episode with our next episode. We are going to be talking about Chapter 27, which... I just love it so much that it seemed absolutely impossible to try to talk about it all in in a single episode. So we're going to spend the first episode of chapter 27 really looking at Bertha and the story of what we learn about Bertha. And so that is what we're going to talk about next week. And I'm I'm just really excited to spend time with our beloved frizzy haired woman with too many feelings. We'll be quite a crew. Yeah. We've really been thinking about how Bertha basically never gets to speak. And there's a lot going on here around how narrative and dialogue is structured in this book. And we wanted to talk to someone about that. And there just happens to be someone who teaches at Harvard who's currently writing a book called Spoken Words, Direct Speech in 19th Century British Novels named Tara Menon who has really interesting information about all of this on her website, really fantastic data visualization. And we thought that it would be worth reaching out to her to just see what she thinks a little bit. So let's give her a call. Hi, Tara. Hi, Lauren. So first of all, can you define what direct speech is for us? Sure. So direct speech is when the words spoken are represented what we would call directly, which means that the exact utterance that is spoken out loud by a character is enclosed in quotation marks. And it's as if we're hearing directly from the character what they're saying. So there's no mediation from the narrator at all. It's not a reported speech, but rather the quotation marks signal that this is actually what the character said. So what do you think it means that Bertha is offered essentially none of that in this book? 
I think that it is one of the rare examples where a character who figures so strongly in the thematic readings of the novel as Bertha does to be completely silenced in the way that she is silenced in this novel. I actually can't think of another example of a character who is so prominent in the reading of the novel that has zero words of direct speech. And I think it... um, really contributes to the representation of Bertha as an animalistic figure, as an almost subhuman, non-human figure in the text. Tara, you have these great data visualization graphs on your website, and I was just really fascinated if you could sort of bring us into them just verbally. Can you talk to us a little bit about how direct speech was changing in the Victorian era and in its literature? Sure, I'd love to. So I, I do some work with a corpus of about a thousand novels from the 19th century and all novels published in Britain, what we would call broadly romantic and Victorian novels. And I work with some quantitative social scientists in order to like write algorithms that are able to read the d- direct speech in these novels. And so I have a few sort of large big picture findings that I could talk about. One is that The large majority of novels published in the 19th century in Britain have between 22% and 49% direct speech, which means something like a quarter to 50% of most novels of the period are composed of direct speech, which is, to state the obvious, quite a large amount of these novels. Another quite interesting finding is that There's a change in what we could think of as the average utterance length, so how many words a character speaks at any given time. And at the beginning of the century, we get long speeches um, on average. So we could think of this as dialogue at the beginning of the century is more like a vehicle for something like politics or philosophy. And by the end of the century, that average utterance length has really reduced. And so that tracks with the rise of realism in the 19th century novel. So we get something that's closer to the back and forth of conversational exchange. So Jane Eyre falls somewhere in the middle of that period, and the novel has a a much shorter utterance length than novels that would appear at the beginning of the century. But there's also often a gender disparity in the average utterance length between characters, and that's really stark in Jane Eyre. So both Rochester and a character that um, we haven't met yet called Sinjin speaks something like 36 words per utterance, and Jane speaks 18 words on average per utterance. So the men speak at twice the length of the women, which maybe is not surprising to anybody. And I actually love the way I feel reading it because I don't ever have a sense when I'm reading these characters where it's like, oh, clearly Bronte was just enraptured with the male voice. I have this like impatience. I feel like she was so on to mansplaining from the beginning (laughs) and that, it, you know, and it allows me to feel Jane barely feeling like she can tolerate it at times. So, Tara, you had a landmark finding regarding Jane Eyre in your own research. Will you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. One of the things that my computational method allowed me to see was 
the number of speaking characters that exist in Jane Eyre. And I think very often when we talk about the novel, whether we're lay readers of the novel or even Victorian experts in Jane Eyre, we think about this novel as being really a love story that plays out between a pretty tight cast of characters, mostly really this dramatic, incredible love story between Jane and Rochester. But I found that actually there are 67 speaking characters in this novel, which is a fact that surprises most people. Even I've found people who have studied the novel for something like three decades. And some of these characters are just like the schoolgirls in Jane's school or the people who come to visit Rochester in the house with Blanche Ingram and company. But I did find that there was also a significant number of unnamed speaking characters in the novel. People like a woman who works at a post office or a waiter at an inn or an ostler. And I write about how Bronte is indexing the kind of anonymous interactions that happen in a capitalist society. And I think the easiest way to describe this would be something like the kind of interaction that you might have with a barista in a coffee shop, which is that you go in, you ask for a coffee, they say, sure, I could get you a coffee, and then you pay, you get your coffee, and you leave. And so you have this kind of transactional exchange with a stranger that is possible only, I think, under the conditions of capitalism, that you can have these benign, quick interactions between two people who don't know anything about each other. And the argument that I make is that Bronte includes these kinds of interactions because she is aware of the changing nature of social relations in the 19th century. And this becomes a more prevalent form of social interaction in the 19th century. And so even though we think about this novel as a gothic domestic romance that happens in the countryside, Bronte is nevertheless still including these interactions that have spread to the countryside in the same way that they are in the city. And you would expect them maybe in a novel by somebody like Charles Dickens. Which I think puts into even greater relief the fact that Bertha gets to speak directly. Zero percent. Zero percent. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I'm fascinated by all of this. But so when... When people ask you about your work and you explain this sort of counting, do they ask you why it matters? Why count the words? Why count the quotation marks? I think that there's some amount of skepticism across the discipline of English still about using what we would call computational tools. Like, can we learn anything useful? Like whether computers can help us at all. And I think my answer to that would be something like, I think computers can't do some things that humans can do. I I think that firmly. I don't think computers can read as well as we can, but I do think that they can count a lot better than we can, and they can do it a lot faster than we can. And when you have an object of study that is very clearly demarcated, like direct speech because of the quotation mark, it is quite helpful to be able to say that, oh, a certain novel is made up of 50% speech, or a character like Rochester speaks 36% of all the spoken words. I don't think that's enough in terms of interpretation. I think you then need to say, what does it mean that we have this dominance of three characters? Or what does it mean that the utterance length changes across the century? I don't think it's enough to just state the fact, but I do think that 
having the facts can lead to better interpretation, especially when it's so easy to do something like count direct speech. We've been talking a lot about second wave feminism because, of course, Gilbert and Gubar's Mad Woman in the Attic was such a seminal text then. It's interesting to think about how much that movement was interested in questions of voice and silencing, and yet digital humanities didn't exist yet. I wish that I wish we had been able to have this conversation in that age with this sort of information. I think that that's such a lovely um, way of putting it. I think it makes me feel quite happy about the work that I'm doing. But I think that that kind of clarifies my motivations, which is that I don't actually think that I'm necessarily asking brand new questions. I'm interested in the same questions that second wave feminist critics were interested in. I just think now we have an additional tool that might help us better answer those questions. I love it. I will be thinking about this through the rest of the novel and probably every other novel I read. Thank you so much, Tara. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to On Air. We're a small show, so we need your support to run. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rom pod. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producers, Ariana Nettleman, and our associate producer is Molly Baxter. We're distributed by Acast. This week, we'd like to thank Deborah Nord, Christy Harner, and Tara Menon for talking to us this week. Julia Arguin, Laura Glass, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com